Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, audio production by Kieran Nemont. And here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Want to Be a Producer, the podcast for emerging producers and creatives wanting to know how it all begins and how to get where they're going. I am your host, Curtis Brown, and I am joined, of course, by our sound engineer, Kieran Nemont. Hello, sir. How was your week? Yeah, pretty good. News? It was good, man. I ran some Facebook ads, and I it came up on my news feed on my Facebook. Did it come up on yours? Yeah, you're advertising to us. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the problem. We only advertise to ourselves and no one else. <laughs> yeah, I see the I see the previews. Um, and obviously oh, can, Facebook do you, does do you a see lot it? of suggestions and things. Oh, so you do get it then? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's good. So at least you've been seeing it. I've been seeing it. It looks like you've gotten a haircut. <laughs> Did you get a haircut? No, no, yeah. no, no. Nope. No, it's just where your mic it's is. And it's just the bed head. It's the bed head. So, oh, there you go, everyone. We roll out of bed. Attire. Well, the secret's <laughs> out, everyone. Cat's out of the bag, as Kramer would say. All we do is roll out of bed and record a podcast. Well, this is great, man. I'm really excited. This has been, uh, this was a really great week. This was a really cool episode because our guest talks a lot about the financing. He's also got this really great uh, creative financing blog, which I am, I'm putting in the show notes. And I really recommend everyone um, take a look because something that a lot of institutions, at least if you're trained in music theater, which I did and my uh, the guest this week did, um, is that they don't teach you a lot about that. So I would always highly recommend like looking into that and his, his, uh, his blog, which I said is in the show notes, you should definitely check out. Um, I don't think there's really thing, anything other than that. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll pop up on your Facebook or your Instagram with our ads. I mean, that would be nice. Although if you're listening to this, you probably don't need it. So <laughs> I guess that's kind of redundant, but that's fine. Um, anyway, Kieran, I think this is it, man. You could take it away. Our guest today is a Tony Award-winning theater producer, general manager, blogger, and theatrical entrepreneur. He is a graduate of Boston Conservatory's musical theater program and is currently pursuing an MBA graduate degree at the University of Illinois. His notable producing credits are Waitress, Oh Hello on Broadway, Meteor Shower, Be More Chill, What the Constitution Means to Me, and The Band's Visit, for which he won his Tony Award and I got to play with while at his apartment. And as if that list wasn't enough, he has also produced Oscar at the Three Crown, Our Dear Dead Drug Lord, Thicker Than Water, and various other shows at the New York Musical Theater Festival. He is also a partner at Fourth Wall Theatricals, which is a boutique theatrical agency providing services in general management, producing, ticket inventory management, and group sales. He has a creative finance blog that I can't tell you the name of just yet because it'll ruin the entire intro, was the director of ticketing for the Tony Awards in 2018, and was dressed as Bob from Bob's Burgers when we first met. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Joe Longthorne. Thank you, Curtis. Such a pleasure to be here. Appreciate yeah, it. man. We're so happy that you're here. I mean, I knew I was like, I was texting. I know we have a few mutual friends and I was texting, texting them being like, I need something funny about Joe. Give me anything from the years that you've known him. Just give me any, any line to end this thing with. And it just ended up being with when we first met when you're at a Halloween party. Uh, no, seriously, man. I'm seriously so happy you could come on the show. Obviously, you've got a wealth of experience in so many other different venues other than just theater producing. And so I'm really happy that our, our listeners will be able to get your insights on uh, on all these subjects. So you're a graduate of Boston Conservatory's musical theater program. So what was the spark that made you want to get into producing and how exactly did you start that journey? Sure. And I would say a lot of it started at Boston Conservatory, to be honest. Uh, as an undergraduate student, I was interested in 
staging productions, staging concerts in non-traditional spaces. Um, so was finding some space around campus that could house like a Sondheim concert or a Kander and Ebb event. And as a student, I really got started just uh, pulling my resources together, you know, working with composition students and orchestral students, and then obviously my musical theater contingency, and putting together these interesting co-collaborative events um, in these non-traditional spaces. And then eventually I came to New York and discovered that there was a whole world of that uh, backstage. You know, I had thought for a long time that I was meant to be on stage and to be the performer uh, in the production and eventually learning about producing and management um, that, that tickled a whole different part of my brain, um, satisfies both my business interest as well as my, obviously my artistic interest. Like what was that transition? Like when you were realizing like to be on stage, I mean, that's what we mm. all wanted to do, right? I mean, that was our first initial like spark until getting into the whole thing and going to musical theater school. So was that a tough transition for you to go, you know, I don't know if I belong on stage was that a tough transition for you to go through? Yes. For me, it was tough in the sense that it was a very slow burn. I mean, I totally, uh, I made this transition over the course of a number of years. So the initial reluctance to sort of switch over to something new was rooted in this idea that I went to school to be a musical theater actor. That's what I had put a lot of my time and money and resources into trying to accomplish. So, you know, at a young age of, of 25, 26, you're thinking about uh, all the time and energy you've put into focusing in one area. And is it the right move to sort of venture off into a different part of the same industry. It, it took me a while to figure it out. Um, it was definitely a slow burn, but eventually I learned that it was totally where I wanted to be at the end. Right. Yeah. And I only asked that question because I feel like obviously we've now year one in a few months in this pandemic. And I feel like a lot of people are probably going through that same same type of thought process there. They're like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the other side of this because I haven't auditioned in a year. And, you know, there's only so many virtual cabarets that I can belt my face off to my camera and to an empty apartment, you know? So I think it's interesting that that journey is always different for every single person. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, some folks are going to be aggressive risk takers and, and move quickly on those kinds of decisions. And some will take more time. I think I sort of fall into the ladder where it takes me time to wrap my head around a big decision. Uh, so I often find that I'm I spend many months uh, ruminating on these big thoughts until I eventually find the right pathway forward. Right. Now, you've I mean, I listed off all those notable credits in your intro here. Now, Obviously, a big part of it, of producing, is raising money. So how exactly did you find your first investors? Were you going to your parents? Were you going to grants? Were you looking from government for money? Like, what was that journey like? Uh, yeah, it's a super interesting question. So I'll just preface it by saying on Broadway, in order to invest in a Broadway show, you have to be an accredited investor. That's right. Uh, so by definition, you have to make at least, I think it's 200000 or $300,000 a year or have net worth uh, in excess of a million dollars outside of your house, your residence. So that, that right away defines the kind of person that you're trying to find to sort of go on this journey with you. For me and my business partner, um, we, we started by making a list of folks that were in our circle. Yeah, we started by thinking about, okay, so who are the family members? Who are the friends, uh, parents that might be interested in this? Who are the acquaintances and the folks that we've worked with in other capacities that have this high net worth that we think might eventually be interested in investing in a Broadway show? It was a list of probably you know 10 to 12 people, and we, we just worked our way through it and eventually 
found someone who was willing to uh, to take the risk with us and invested some money into Fun Home, which was the first property we raised money for. Um, so when that happened and then that worked and went well and that investor made their money, it definitely opened the door to then being able to go to even more folks in a larger net, a larger circle and say, hey, we just did this. It went really well. We have new opportunities on the horizon we'd be interested in telling you about. Wow. Okay. So what you were doing is you were going out and going, well, why don't we just go to these pool of people, take their money, and then we use it together under our company name and push it and use it that way as you as a yes, producer. Yeah. So that's a great point. On Broadway, you know, you have co-producers is like the bench of producers that are raising capital for different that's Broadway right. shows. Um, mm-hmm. And some of them are like me and they, they go out and raise funds and they find funds for shows. And then some of them are folks that have the funds. And so they can cause to contribute their own money to then get the producer billing as well. And now your producing credits are quite diverse. Like, so you have The Band's Visit, you've got Waitress, What the Constitution Means to Me, which is on Amazon, and I highly recommend everyone watch that, uh, Our Dear Dead Drug Lord, and to multiple productions at Nymph, right? So what exactly are you, Joe Longthorne, looking for in a production that makes you want to get involved? My first... Uh, our first instinct in, in, pro- in project selection, you know, goes back to... I often thought to myself, I want to work on a show that makes me feel something physically, honestly. Um, And so in the case of the many shows I've worked on, it could be something like The Band's Visit, where when I saw it off-Broadway, I realized I was holding my breath because I was enjoying the musical moment so much. Or it's something like Oh Hello with John Mulaney and Nick Kroll, where I would sit in the audience and clutch my stomach from laughter because it was just so funny. Um, so I that's one mantra I try and stick to, and I, I try and keep that in mind when I'm selecting new projects. It, it has to be something that makes me feel something. Um, and furthermore, you know, the shows that you work on, you're going to be seeing multiple, multiple times. So it's sort of important to me also that I enjoy the show. Uh, Waitress, as an example, was a show I worked on. I probably saw it anywhere between 25 and 30 times in different companies over the course of the various runs. And so you were talking about Oh Hello. So would you have seen Oh Hello before Oh Hello went to Broadway then? Because to be an investor, or did you sit in the theater, see it and go, oh, shit, we need to invest in this. This is great. Yeah, that was a fun show. Uh, In that case, I actually had some partners, some colleagues I worked with that uh, had seen the run downtown in New York, the the off-Broadway run. And I didn't get to see it there, but there was an archival video. And so prospective producers and investors were able to get access to that video. So I had the chance to see the video. I had a lot of familiarity with both the guys, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll, just as a fan. Um, So when putting all the pieces together and thinking about if it could be a good venture or not, uh, I sort of had as much info as I needed. But having access to the video was super helpful. Well, yeah, you want to see what you're investing in, right? You, you, exactly. you want to know, as you say, you want to be able to sit in that seat, know that I'm either going to be laughing, holding my breath, crying, whatever, right? Feeling yeah. emotion. So you've been a lead producer, a co-producer, an associate producer on different productions. So which role do you enjoy the most and why? I would have to say I'm just dipping my toes in, but lead producing is my ultimate goal. And it's sort of what I get the most satisfaction from. Uh, mm. In terms of the hierarch- hierarchical structure of producers, you know, lead producer is the CEO of the company. So they're the folks that are coming along and saying, I have an idea for this project. I can find the money and the resources to make it happen. And then everything trickles down from there. Um, So that's an exciting position to be in. Uh, On the converse, I've done a lot of co-producing, a lot more co-producing than lead producing at this point. And that is exciting. It really just depends on the relationship between co-producer and lead producer. Uh, Mm -hmm. As a co-producer, you have a little bit more limited access to the decision making. So it just depends on how much they want to invite the co-producers in to be a part of strategy and and macro decision making. Right. And you also do a lot of 
stuff as a GM as well. So, and I mean, as I said, you have that fourth fourth wall theatrical. So my question to you is, what would be the big difference between a GM? Because at the GM, the general manager is no different than a general manager like the Jets, which I know you're a huge fan of, right? Yeah. So it's, you know, you're creating the budget, you're you're deciding who is on the creative team, et cetera, whatever. So is what, what would you say are the differences between a lead producer and a general manager? Or are they one more in the same? Uh, they're very closely linked. Uh, general manager is more the nuts and bolts of the operation. Um, right. So that, as you said, it's budget development, it's budget execution, it's logistics, it's running payroll, scheduling space, getting insurance policies in place. Um, and I do enjoy that a lot. I think that's a very useful position for any wannabe producer to investigate because they do speak so closely to each other. I would say the big difference is a producer is less in charge of the minutia and the nuts and bolts and they're thinking big term all the time. They're thinking macro strategy versus the the general manager is like in the trenches figuring out the nuts and bolts. Great. So what interests you more, developing a musical from the start or coming on to an established project? Oh gosh, great question. It depends. I have really enjoyed both in different ways. I Mm -hmm. think in terms of where I see my career going and the kinds of things I want to do in the future, um, I do enjoy being involved at the start. I think there's a lot of creative decision-making that happens in the first year, year and a half of incubation. Uh, And furthermore, my experience as a general manager has taught me that it's supremely important to uh, keep costs as low as possible at the beginning of a project. And I often find that what my partners and I are working together on a new show, we are able to do that together because we have uh, an emphasis on achieving that versus coming into a project at a later stage, I have much less control over the money that was spent in years one through three, for example. Right. Oh, wow. So I guess it is kind of that, is it kind of like that Shark Tank thing where you're walking in and you're like, wait, someone's already spent, someone's already held up like 30% of this thing. And whereas you, you as one of the sharks, you're like, well, you know, I want to know, I want, I want that 30%. Is it that type of, type of feel? Yeah, in a way. Um, also, you know, it sort of says that um, when a show is ready for Broadway, like what is the valuation of the company? So we've right. seen many shows that uh, have gone through the development process over the course of three, four, five years, and then they're ready for Broadway. And what is a mid-sized musical that should, in my mind, cost maybe close to 10, 11, 12 million dollars, all of a sudden costs 14, 15, 16 million. Right. And that difference, you know, it, it's a difference in uh, in risks. And then you have to repay all of that money to the investors as well. So I think um, keeping the valuation low is, is important in developing any new show. Right. And so now that we're on the subject of money, and I want to tell you finally to all our listeners, if you are still listening, that the blog and the, uh, that Joe runs and is the founder and CEO of is called Creative Finance with Broadway Joe, which is obviously why I couldn't say his name because I wanted to say his name at the end. Anyway, so for emerging producers, what are some financial tips that you would tell them that could help them either immediately or further down the line? Obviously, you're not Jim Cramer and you're not going to be like telling everyone to like go invest in Tesla right now, but, mm-hmm. but j- just a few tips that maybe that can help someone. Uh, Yes. So as producers, we are self-employed people, which is a whole uh, crazy concept to wrap your mind around. Um, If there are folks out there that have day jobs where they, you know, have 401k accounts and they're getting taxes taken out of their paychecks. That sort of is the norm. That's how we understand uh, work to function. As a producer, you're a self-employed person. So you you are essentially running your own business. Every show that you create from the ground up is a startup in a way, and it's Mm -hmm. a whole new business venture. Um, So on the personal finance side of things, uh, it's just important to understand 
that while you're not paying taxes in the moment, you need to be putting money aside for your taxes at the end of the year. Um, you need to know what retirement accounts you have access to because you are a self-employed person. You know, you don't have someone that's contributing to a 401k for you. So it might mean if you're in the United States, you'd start your own IRA account, an individual retirement account, um, and you can have access to that to invest for the long term. So just keeping an eye on the on the overall puzzle and how it works. Yeah, so the IRA I think is similar to what we have in Canada, which is a TFSA, but I might be might be might be slightly different because the TFSA in Canada for all our Canadian listeners is it's a tax-free savings account. So you can uh, your first addition can be up to $65,000 and then from there on you get $6,000 every year that's tax-free money that you can invest with ever with whatever. Is that kind of similar? Is that would be the similar to an IRA? Sounds very similar. Yeah, I think our version of that is called the Roth IRA, which is the tax-free uh, retirement account we have available to us. Right. So I would I would suggest that everyone goes on to uh, Creative Finance with Broadway Joe. I'll put it into the notes here in into the episode. Uh, there's so much on there. All you can talk about different accounts, credit card debt. J- Joe goes through it all, and it's it is actually very very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, and I think you know why I started that blog. I realized amongst my colleagues and my contemporaries that these were just concepts that that we were not taught in school in our conservatory education. And so there is a big hole in the industry of j- just the knowledge of personal finance. I think that there's a lot of power in educating yourself and learning more about it, um, especially from the artist standpoint where you are sort of your own business, your own branded business along the way. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something I never understood either is why they don't teach you that as part of it. I mean, you know, they tell you the whole time, you know, you're going to be self-employed, you're going to be out there, you know, little fish in the big sea. Well, it's like, well, you know, it would be nice if you told me how to save my money and like to like manage my money, you know, it's so odd. There's so many great programs like the Boston Conservatory. And I know my alma mater as well, Sheridan College, that I'm like, you know, like, why, why didn't we have a proper course in this, you know? Yes. And I hope it becomes more mainstream. I think obviously the pandemic has forced us to sort of shift focus and take different things more seriously. And, and personal finance should be at the very top of that of that mountain for folks. And um, I hope that these programs and, and educational institutions will start to prioritize that in the coming years. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I, I just think it's super important. I mean, and you and I have even spoken about it, that it's like you want to take your money and start turning it into more money. And you know exactly. what I mean? And that's that's the whole idea. So I wanted to get your thoughts. Actually, I find it funny that you watch an archival of uh, Oh Hello. Obviously, an Oh, oh Hello archival was uh, meant for, obviously, purposes to get attract more investors. But mm-hmm. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on bootlegs. It's a great question. It's hard to say. I think I have a split opinion on the matter, honestly. If I see a world in which a bootleg – and look, I'm going to first preface all of this by saying I understand what the union rules are around these things, that that bootlegs uh, are frowned upon in the sense that it's a violation of the actor's rights and and our producers, our obligations to the actors, etc. But let's say someone comes into a theater, they have a camera, they figure out how to make a bootleg happen. If it attracts more positive attention for your show, I can see a world in which – a bootleg is an ally to a show in that way. You know, it can create incentive for someone who sees the bootleg to then want to go buy a ticket to see the real thing in person because they loved what they saw so much. Uh, On the converse, in theater, we have often been allergic to video media in a lot of ways because we want to protect what happens on stage and keep it as something special that is uh, requires ticketed entry, you know, that you have to buy a ticket to come see this thing if you want to come see our show. 
Right. Uh, I think we're about to embark on a whole new adventure in that land in the sense that we're about to see a lot more audiovisual uh, adaptation of different projects. We're seeing Broadway shows that are trying to record on stage to access larger audiences across streaming platforms. So there is there's a there's a final frontier I think ahead of us. Um, but on the subject of bootleg, you know, we don't like to see too much illegal content floating around. But if it helps the show in the long run, you know, producers are always going to be in support of what helps their show. Right. And let's be honest, everyone loves to watch Broadway belters on Instagram, don't we? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, it is nice, isn't it? It is nice to see from time to time. No, and I totally agree. I mean, I think having broadcast kind of like um, what the Constitution means to me. I mean, right there, I watched it and I was like, well, holy shit, where's it playing? Like, I want to go get a ticket. And it's similar and it's similar now where, you know, I mean, I was at a concert literally a year ago, like in two days. And you know, I can go put put on the CD, but I don't want to put on the CD. I want to feel, you know, the drum hit my chest. Like, you know what I mean? You want to be there too. So I totally understand what you mean by that, that, you know, it, it's going to attract people, but there also always will be other people who go, uh, I've also seen it as well. Yeah. And I think if we've learned something from this past year, you know, in business school right now, I'm studying uh, Michael Porter's five forces analysis, which essentially says, what are the five forces of business that make an industry run and tick? And one of them is the threat of substitutes. We talk a lot about uh, a product will become uh, irrelevant if a substitute comes along that can replace it. And I think what we've learned is that really nothing will replace live theater. I can say that with a lot of confidence. You know, we've had a whole year now of Zoom theater, of virtual programming, and it's nice. It fills sort of a, a temporary need for relief. But I think in the long term, everyone will agree it doesn't replace the experience of going to sit in a theater with 500 other people and having that, that emotional experience in person. Absolutely. I I 100% agree with you. I mean, listen, we've had the Zoom technology through Skype, through whatever, for how many years now? And we never chose to do it until we absolutely have to. I truly believe there is a reason why we didn't choose to do it earlier. Yes, absolutely. So I want to play a little game. It's called Radio Play, and it's where we get to know you, Joe Longthorne, the person, rather than you, Joe Longthorne, the producer. Sound good? Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. All right. This is Radio Play. What time do you wake up in the morning? These days, about 10 a.m. It's a little later than I'd like. You up late, though? I am up late. I'm a, I'm a night owl. There you go. Favorite lyric from a music theater song? Um, it would be Into the Woods. Just remembering you've had an and when you're back to or makes the or mean more than it did before. It's brilliant. That's on time, man. He yeah. just, right, he figured it out. I don't know how he did it, but he figured it out. Uh, current favorite television show? Uh, current favorite show... I'm watching WandaVision. I, it's a lot of fun. I'm a sucker for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they got me. I know. They literally have me, too, by, like, this the belt of my pants, man. Yeah. I can't get over I'm literally, like, tomorrow already. Tomorrow. I know. I know. I know. I know. It's so good. Um, unlimited budget. What show are you producing? You know, uh... I'm, I'm keenly interested at some point in reinterpreting a revival. I'd love to sort of do something big and bold and beautiful with an old classic, but really reinvent it. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the Oklahoma revival we just had. Um, so I, I'd love to sort of radicalize something classic uh, and do something like that with an unlimited budget. Which celebrity that you've met excited you the most? It was probably John Mulaney. Um, working working with him just a little bit, but meeting him at parties and meetings. Um, he is a comedy icon, and uh, it was just such a, a joy to meet him. So exciting. Nice guy? Yeah, very nice. More introverted than you think. Yeah. I, I feel I feel probably with all those people around, right? And it's yes. not like he's on stage and can like, perform and be like, yeah. a totally different person. So a performance you wish you could relive? 
performance I wish I could relive, I would say um, there was a production of Our Town that played off-Broadway in New York just a few years ago. It was the David Cromer production, and it was riveting beyond belief, in my opinion. It sort of took this classic, um, again, it sort of speaks to my need to sort of want to reinvent a revival, but he really reinvented the, the, the show by just using the text, and it was modern and fresh and contemporary and just absolutely wonderful. Biggest pet peeve? Biggest pet peeve? Um, I'm trying to think about what's my pet peeve when I'm sitting in a theater. Uh, you know, I'll speak <laughs> on my sister's behalf. My sister is a, hates gum chewing, so I'm going to oh, be in camp gum chewing. It's That's no good. That and the rappers, and sometimes you get the heavy breathers. I'm like, dude, not today. Please, not today. Underrated <laughs> musical. Underrated, I would say Legally Blonde. Um, Legally Blonde is in my top three, actually, of musicals. And I think that uh, Lawrence O'Keefe is one of the most brilliant musical theater writers we have. I agree. That show is written like an old school musical. And it's dying to have a musical film done of it. Um, What's your ideal Friday night? Ideal Friday night, I... Um, in normal times, you know, I might be able to go to a show, go to the bar with some friends afterwards. Um... Uh, have a social a social adventure followed by, um, you know, I am a, an introverted person in my own way, so I really enjoy some alone time at the end of the day. So I'd probably go home and make myself a Manhattan and just enjoy uh, some Friday night TV programming. Awesome. Guilty pleasure? Uh, Chipwich. I'm, I'm a sucker for a Chipwich. I don't know if that's if they call them that in Canada. but it's I don't know two, what it is. Oh, it's like the two chocolate chip cookies with the vanilla ice cream in the middle. Oh, those are good. And I, yeah, I keep one of those in the freezer most nights. What are you scared of? I, I'm a big legacy person, to be honest. So in sort of an overarching way, I think I often fear, even if it's subliminal, that that my legacy will not be enough. So I'm constantly trying to create and, and support and, and build new foundations for things that might outlive me. Um, legacy is something that's often on my mind. And what does a person need to be happy? Uh, they don't need much. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you need good people in your life, uh, access to the elements, whether that be uh, you enjoy a snowy hike or you enjoy laying in the lake in the middle of the day. Um, the simple pleasures. I think you can find so much in, in, in the simple pleasures of life. Do you believe in love at first sight? I do. Yeah. Should award shows exist? Yes. Yeah. I think award shows have a, a both a positive and negative purpose. Do ghosts exist? Yes. Do aliens exist? I, I think they must. I, I have no obviously no data to support that claim, but I simply think they must. That you, you were just one of the people running at Area 51 to try and... Because you knew this question was coming. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, and last one. If you were given the opportunity to fly into space given today's technology, would you do it? Yes, if I knew it was going to be a, a short-term adventure. I don't think I have any interest in living in space or spending uh, years of my life up there. But if I could do a quick round trip, I think that could be kind of fun. That's radio play. You know, that's actually a really good point. No one's, every time I've asked that question, no one actually ever brings up how long they want to be gone for. I never actually say that. So that's actually like a really smart way of, of, of seeing that being like, well, if I'm gone for like a year, I don't want to be gone. But if I'm gone for five days, like, you know, and it's an all inclusive inside the I International Space Station, we're talking. Yeah. And I'm such a New Yorker at heart. Like this city has my heart for the long term. So I can't spend too much time away from New York is the other, the other thing. What do you wish you knew about producing or Broadway producing now that you wish you knew at the start of your career? Well, um, 
you know, good advice that was given to me early on, and I'm not sure I completely understood it until even more recently, was if you want to be a producer, don't quit your day job. Uh, and essentially, the person giving me the advice was trying to let me know that it is a profession that is uh, laborious. It takes time and energy and blood and sweat and tears to become a successful producer. Um, it, it's not going to happen overnight, and it's it's something that um, you know you can support yourself through the means of another job at the same time. For me, that was general management. I have a job that is also existing inside of, of theater and entertainment, but it speaks directly to what I want to accomplish as a producer. So I think that is important. If you want to get started in producing, just knowing that it's not, um, you're not going to the moon with GameStop stock or anything like that. You have to actually put the time and energy into making it work. Yeah, right. But we're not all just going to sit on Wall Street bets and just be like, okay, so we're going to do this show and everyone, you know, and then it just happens, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So as a producer, what is the most challenging aspect of your job today? Uh, in this moment, it's the fact that we can't produce uh, in person. So it, it's been tough because it's put a lot of my projects on ice. You know, we have certain things that are just at the moment in their development path where they are ready to be seen by an audience. And we've not wanted to do that digitally. So we're just patiently waiting until until venues reopen and we can get back to doing workshops in person. Right. And last question is, what do you want the future of theater to look like? I would love to see it uh, with more diversity. I know that that's a huge part of the the global conversation that's happening right now around theater, but also so many other industries. And I think we have to continue to look for ways to to be better in our in our sector of, of where we work and live. Um, it means creating opportunities for people. You know, I'm, I'm starting to think about my, you mentioned my love of the New York Jets in football. I've often thought about how in football, there's a rule called the Rooney rule, which means you have to interview a minority head coach candidate when you're replacing a head coach. And if I think about theater, I think, well, why don't we have an equivalency? Why don't we have a rule or a standard in place for ourselves that says, if I'm looking for a director for a project, I, I have to interview a black candidate. I have to interview a minority candidate. Whether or not they get the job, it gives them the experience of interviewing for that job. And it's just going to create more opportunities down the pipeline. So I, I hope for a future that, that looks more colorful uh, across all parts of the landscape. I can't believe that's a, like that's a rule. That's such a great idea. How is that not used like widely across like multiple different professions? I don't know. It's a great point. I know um, the unions, Actors Equity, and others are, are struggling for ways to make uh, meaningful impact in this area. And I think these are simple things that are no cost, but could go a long no. way in fostering more talent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely, and possibly discovering like huge talent too. Like you know what I mean? It's like you know, and, and inspiring more talent, you know, you can't be what you can't see for a lot of people, especially when you're young. So yes. to have that role model, to have that, that's why I love like the WandaVision and what they're doing now and stuff, you know, it, it, it's more inclusive. And I think that's, that is the future. So Joe, I really appreciate you taking your time. Um, I, you know, all your invaluable insight, you're seriously, it's just been an absolute joy to talk to you, to catch up again. Everyone make sure you go check out uh, creative finance with Broadway Joe. We're going to put all your socials in the notes, make sure you go follow Joe. Uh, and seriously, man, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Curtis. It was a joy to chat with you. Um, on all these things I love so much. I appreciate your time as well. Awesome. Take care. This has been a Brown Stuff production.